Hey guys, I'm Pete. And I'm Alex. And you're listening to the Kick Push Pivot Podcast. I'm a former Fortune 500 consultant dedicated to the idea of innovation and growth. And I used to manage marketing tours for the Rolling Stones, focused on creating one-of-a-kind customer experiences. On this podcast, we interview people faced with the decision to kickstart innovation, push through doubt, or pivot to something new. We hope you find something inspiring or encouraging as you listen. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Kick, Push, Pivot. Today we have a guest, Karen Drexler, who will be sharing her experiences both as a startup founder and entrepreneur and as an investor from Astia Ventures. Um, Alex, my co-host, as usual, is joining me from today. Alex, say hello to the crowd. How are we doing, everybody? Glad to have you all here. And as we like to say, good to see all your smiling faces on the radio. Excellent. And Karen, um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We're looking forward to having you here today. Thanks. My pleasure. It should be fun. So Karen, just to introduce yourself and kind of your story to um, our listeners today, would you mind just sharing kind of your background as well as uh, how you first started to enter into the, the healthcare space as well, as well as the investor community? Sure. And again, thanks for having me here. In my background, I was trained as a chemical engineer and was actually studying alternate energy. I wanted to work in the solar energy field, very focused in that area. And as my studies started progressing, my father was diagnosed with diabetes. He was probably misdiagnosed as a type 2 or adult onset. And based on his reaction to the insulin that they provided to him, he kept going into coma. He got very ill. He probably was a late onset type one, which is a type of diabetes that doesn't require as much insulin. Anyway, he deteriorated very quickly. And by the time I graduated from college, he passed away of a massive heart attack that was diabetes related. So I decided that this was crazy. He was using technology that was, was antiquated. He clearly wasn't cared for well. And I thought I'd apply my technical skills to the, to the healthcare space and in particular, see if I could find something to do in diabetes. So I went about looking for companies that were working in that area. By this time, after, after um, undergrad, I came out to Stanford to go to business school for my MBA and was very fortunate to find a local company, a startup called LifeScan, that had just gotten started with the idea of developing some technologies to help people monitor their diabetes from from home. And I was fortunate to be able to join LifeScan as one of the first handful of employees there and had uh, about an 11-year amazing career at at LifeScan that allowed me to feel like I was really giving back and really contributing to this this difficult disease of diabetes. Karen, what was it that you were doing uh, exactly at LifeScan? Oh, I did a little bit of everything. So I started out in marketing and sales, worked on some some products. Uh, I actually wrote the company offering document, worked with our bank owner and our attorneys in selling the company to J&J, which is a, wow. as a young person was an amazing opportunity. The attorney on the case was the famous Larry Sansini from the Wilson Sansini firm. So I got to work with him directly, um, worked with some uh, amazing bankers, learned a lot. And at the end of that experience, the, the CEO said to me, well, what, what would you like to do next? And I wanted to put my engineering background to work. 
So I said, well, I'm kind of interested in manufacturing. So with no background in manufacturing, I was moved in to run the operations area. So I had manufacturing and materials sourcing and planning and training. And that was actually the, the area that I spent the most of my time at LifeScan was in the operations area. And I loved making product. Really fun to sit down on the assembly line and actually crank out physical things that I could see going out the, out the door. So that was terrific. Um, after doing that for a while, I, I wanted to have a broader business exposure to the, to the company. And so I ended up running a business unit where we were developing some new technology as a separate business unit where I had responsibility for marketing, quality, R&D, operations, really structured as a, a separate little company within a, within a company. And uh, it was toward the, the end of my tenure in that, in that role that some of the things that we learned in market research really started having an impact on me as we were interacting with people who are living with this devastating disease, working with the technologies. I realized there were opportunities to do some different things than what we were doing at LifeScan. So I had some ideas that I brought to the management and the, the ideas were pretty different in terms of the manufacturing infrastructure that would have been required for those products. And I was turned down. They told me they weren't interested in pursuing it because they wanted to leverage the infrastructure they already had. Mm. So I decided at that point, and I had a good broad business background at this stage, really passionate about the diabetes space. So I figured, well, if I think these are good ideas, I'm willing to stand behind them, I should just go do them. So I left LifeScan and started my first healthcare company around these ideas that would help improve the, the interface of people and technology for, for monitoring and managing diabetes. Interesting. Yeah. So what exactly was LifeScan creating? It was the, the testing devices or what was it? Home blood glucose monitoring devices. And LifeScan was the first to develop monitoring devices that people could use at home that were actually designed for people to use at home. At that point in time, there were a couple of big companies that had realized that people with diabetes needed more information in order to manage their disease. Although the medical profession at that point was very reluctant to have patients self-manage. They were afraid that patients would hurt themselves, that they would take the wrong amount of insulin, that they would end up going into a coma. So there, there were a lot of market forces that were, that were interesting. But in order for patients to, to do that testing at home, at that point in time, they needed to get a, fair, a fairly large drop of blood. And so one of the things that I had observed in, again, these market research scenarios with, with patients is I'd see people's hands and they'd hold their hands up and their fingertips were black from mm. all of the testing they were doing in their fingertips with these rather large oh. needles. Yeah. And it, it occurred to me that we could make a huge difference for people both in terms of their their comfort, but also in terms of their compliance, their their willingness to do this testing, which is so vital to keeping them healthy, if we could reduce the invasiveness of the testing. So now, you know, a couple of decades later, we've got all sorts of technologies where people can do continuous monitoring, but it's taken a long time for that to evolve. What, what I worked with on the company that I started was reducing the, the pain we really focused on reducing the pain of getting that blood sample for diabetes testing. And we were able to do that by developing a methodology for getting 
blood from the palm of the hand or the back of the arm or other areas on the body where the nerve density is a lot lower. Interesting. But those areas don't bleed as regularly, as, as easily. Mm-hmm. So in order to do that, we also needed to develop a whole monitoring system that would accommodate a much, much, much smaller drop of blood. And that change ended up being adopted by the whole industry. So you look at the amount of blood now that's used for glucose monitoring, it's maybe a hundredth of the amount of blood that my that initially we were working with at, at LifeScan. So the industry has, has gone in that direction. But it was really that focus on patient pain and making it more accessible for patients and comfortable for patients to do this really life-saving testing that uh, I, I thought was a good enough idea to go out and try to get it funded separately. Good for it you. Really was That's the, amazing. Was the aha moment just moving the location of where they're getting tested? Yeah, it was. Although there were there were actually two aha moments. So one of them was literally thinking about, okay, can we can we move to other locations to get blood? But the other, I remember playing around, sitting at a desk and trying to figure out how do you get blood out of these other areas when you prick your finger, the end of a fingertip. You can squeeze behind it to push blood because it's at the end of that. You've got a terminus there. So blood flows out and you've got a lot of blood density, capillary density, as well as the nerve density. When you go to these other areas, you can't really squeeze them and get in their places for the the blood to escape. Mm -hmm. So I remember sitting and playing and I don't have anything in my hand I can I can show you. But if you think about a syringe with a cap the cap snaps on. So we had some insulin syringes we were playing with. And I was just sitting there and kind of pushing the cap of the insulin syringe against against my hand. And what you could see is that the blood would well up inside that little circle because you were constricting the blood flow in a ring. And that was really the aha moment as to how we could get blood from other parts of the body was we needed to not just think about the lancing part, the needle part. We needed to think about how we deal with the tissue around it to make sure the blood flows inward and out as opposed to escaping again. So wow. yeah, just kind of crazy, just playing around and like, look, there's blood there. You know, it, it's red there that there's something that's causing that it's the blood under the surface. So very cool. You know. Amazing. So, you know, Karen, some of the obstacles you faced as you've gone joining as a startup company, taking it to Johnson and Johnson who ended up buying it for, uh, you know, a billion dollars, and then moving into your own venture as well. Tell us about how Asia came into the picture. Yeah. So when I started my own company, I I had to go out and raise money for it. We needed to set up a lab. We needed to develop instrumentation and chemistry and physical devices for, for getting the blood sampling. And I went out to some of the investors I had met through the LifeScan experience. I was not responsible for raising money there, but I met some of our investors And what I started hearing right away, and one person literally said this to me, we don't invest in people who look like you. And the the clear implication was female. I also had people, and this is actually illegal, I had investors who would say to me, I was a a young woman, I hadn't had my children uh, yet at that point. I had, I got questions about how can you think about having a family and running a business? Won't you be distracted? And these are questions men don't get. And in order to to counteract that, 
I actually brought in the guy who was the CEO who hired me at LifeScan. We'd become very close friends. And I asked him to join me as an executive chair so that I would have the white male sitting with me. He was the trustworthy, this is the guy we're used to investing in, sitting next to me. And he just an amazing guy. He's a huge supporter of women. I saw that at LifeScan. And he, he would be very direct with investors. He would come to investor meetings. He would take part. But he was always very clear it's going to be Karen who's running the business. So it, on one hand, it gave them comfort, but it was also just hugely supportive for me to have somebody there who would, would back me up. And having him involved in the business was a, certainly one of my better decisions. So anyway, I, I, I observed some of these challenges in raising money. And when I was fortunate enough to sell that business to Roche after running it for about six years, I decided that I had so many lessons learned around being a, a woman in the entrepreneurial environment that I wanted, I wanted to give back in some way. I wanted to find other women that I could help. And I heard about an organization, a nonprofit that had started up just within the year of when I sold that business to Roche. That organization is what's now called Astia. It had a different name then, but I immediately glommed on to the, the concept and became involved with Astia. And the, the idea was that this is an organization of men and women. It was always men and women around the table because the world is full of men and women, but who would focus on supporting women and getting them exquisitely prepared to go in and do these pitches help them with business plans and with presentation skills, with connections, putting all that together, we thought that could make a big impact. So I was involved in, in teaching in mentoring and working with women. And what we found over the course of the first 10 years or so is that with these incredible women, amazingly prepared, nailed down business plans, they still couldn't get funded. So Astia did a pivot and went from being a supporting, coaching, connecting organization to an organization, we realized that we needed to be part of the capital formation if we were going to have an impact. We had to ha actually help women by bringing money to the table. Mm -hmm. And uh, we wanted to do that in, in two different ways, initially through our own funding. So I'm part of the, the founding group, 10 of us, who are the founding members of Astia Angels, where we wanted to put our own personal capital to work for some of these high potential women. But we also wanted to be able to raise a fund at some point that would allow us to put more capital work to work than we could as individuals, to have money for follow on rounds, which tend to be a little difficult for angel investors if a company needs more money. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we, we had an evolution over time about the, the way that SDA supported these female entrepreneurs. So Karen, it sounds like obviously being female was one of your major uh, challenges that you faced in, in getting funding. Um, but I'm sure there was plenty of other challenges that you faced as well. And probably some of these things that you teach to the, uh, the young entrepreneurs that you're working with currently, maybe you can speak to some of those other challenges on top of being female that someone faces when they're looking to get funding for a business. Yeah. So that when you, when you go out and you're telling your story, and this is something actually as an investor that I've learned as well, it's really easy as, a, as an entrepreneur, especially if you're a technologist, to get wedded to your technology. I've studied 
whatever. I saw this a lot actually in the diabetes space, people who studied imaging, who would, would think, okay, what can I apply this to? And for a decade or more, basically everybody who was doing imaging was thinking, I can do non-invasive glucose monitoring. I can shine a light through the body somehow and it will refract or it will reflect, it will do something and I'll be able to do glucose monitoring without an invasive sample. And it's, it's really important to let the need drive the business, drive the technology decisions as opposed to the technology driving the need. So I, I learned this as an entrepreneur, but now as, a, as an investor, when I see a technology and somebody is chasing an application, as opposed to really understanding, especially in healthcare, really understanding where there's a patient need, a physician need, a health system need, and then figuring out the best technology to bring to solve that problem. So it took a while to kind of understand that and embrace that, but that's that's been very important for me and continues to be a guiding light as I look at technologies, look at companies I want to invest in. That's a, that's a really great nugget. I love that that quote of mm -hmm. let the need drive technology versus the technology driving the need. Because we've all seen people that are passionate about their thing, right? And right. sometimes people always say passion is a good thing, and it is, but sometimes mm -hmm. it can make you blind where you push something that may not be the best fit. So I think this is a great little nugget that will make sure I highlight for the listeners here. Um, mm -hmm. Very good. Yeah, I think that really drives innovation as well, right? Instead of just taking the technology that you have and figuring out uses for it. No, you go for the need and then you the technology follows. Yeah. You create that technology and that just continues the innovation. Yeah. And I've been an advisor uh, along the way to a number of companies that have come out of the Stanford Biodesign Program. And that program, which is really the first program, I think in the world, that teaches medical device innovation, it births a lot of interesting companies and the, the guiding principle there, uh, the, first, the first year of that program is all needs finding, where the, the students who are in that environment, students from engineering and medical and business backgrounds, spend time with physicians and in surgery suites and with administrators and identify a whole range of needs before they hone in and figure, in, figure out what they want to do to bring a technology forward. And I think that's a great approach. Excellent. Okay, so then now moving into Astia, you're helping young women uh, get their businesses funded. Maybe you can speak a little bit more to uh, some of the specifics with that, maybe some of the challenges you've faced or some pivots that you've had to make along the way to get that going. Uh, and and we, do, we do focus on women. I would set, put a caveat on your term of young women. It's actually across the spectrum. And we, we do find that there are, are quite a few women who have careers in large organizations, maybe learn about things that they, they see as a need, especially in women's health, which is an area where I'm very active. We see a lot of women who are responding to things that they themselves need as they go through their, their family cycles, their reproductive cycles that are missing in the market that might spur an idea that they wanna then go out and, and start a company around. And we have quite a few of those companies in our portfolio as, as well. So, uh, we have a, a very formal process for evaluating ideas because as we've we've seen, there are there are a lot of places that women don't feel welcome. 
So we want an environment where women come to us and they do. We've been able to create that. And we have such an overwhelming number of women who come in, we needed to put a formal screening process in place, something we call the SDS-SIFT that allows us to look at the characteristics of the business, the, the team. We're supporting high potential businesses. So there are, are lots of women, lots of people who support businesses that are lifestyle businesses meant to support their families. And this could be a bakery or a salon or, you know, there, there are a lot of these businesses that generate employment and economic are economic drivers, but that's not the kind of business that we support. We're looking for businesses that have the opportunity to grow and can have a big impact. About a third of what we do is in healthcare. We do a lot of work in software, got a lot of strength in our team in the software side. So software as a service, other software uh, platforms, fintech, environmental, it's actually a pretty broad range of companies that we, that we invest in. But what we try to do through our SIFT process is provide the entrepreneurs access to our broad network. And over the years, we've built up a global network of about 5,000 people who help support our, our companies. They help with deal flow, they help with deal screening, and they help with mentoring and sometimes end up taking more formal roles in companies. A part of what we do is the companies go through this screening process is we allow the the people within our within our environment to raise their hand and say, I want to help this company. So we can't fund all of them, but we we like to think in some way we can help all of them. It's really nice being part of an investment group that whose parent is a nonprofit. Because our mission is to help these these female founders. And we can do that in in many, many ways. So, so it's that's been pretty exciting. Yeah. yeah, that's an interesting piece that, that brings something up for me. So you are, I mean, obviously you're trying to help women get funded where they can't get funded elsewhere, but you're obviously still looking for businesses that'll be profitable. You can't invest in everybody. So can you speak to that challenge of having to deny some of these women and maybe what you have to do um, um, after that? Yeah. So again, over the years, we've developed this formal program. It actually has a, a seven different steps in it. And we use the people in our broad community to help us. We, we look for well, this, just a little tidbit. The very first thing when you look at the Astia website is we ask, is there a woman on the, the team with significant equity and influence? And the number of companies that check no and still go ahead and fill out the application is kind of surprising. But anyway, that's the first screen is, do you meet, do you meet the basic criteria? And the basic criteria are pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, we're looking for businesses that can scale and women who are in positions of influence and, and equity. They need to be on the cap table. So it's not enough that you start a company that's all male and you bring on a low level, you've got one female employee. That's not going to do it for us. Right. So usually they're founders and most often they are CEOs, but not always. Sometimes we've got chief technology officers, chief marketing officers, chief medical officers. Um, so that's all that's all fine. And then we go through various screens where we've got people within our, uh, our organization who are qualified. We've got industry specific experts. We've got people who are who have the right business background. And all along the way, we try to give. All of the, the screens, the screening work that we do, we give all that feedback back to the entrepreneurs. So we, we do turn down the majority of the companies, mm -hmm. but 
most of the women who, or most of the companies that go through the process feel like they've learned something that okay. helps them. We've made a connection and that's really our, our goal. So. Uh, Very cool. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's gotta, it's gotta be tough sometimes to turn these, these women away, you know, but the fact that you're actually providing some education as well yeah. through the whole process, I yeah. think that's really, really innovative and very cool. Yeah. yeah, That's great. Yeah. So as we kind of wrap up our conversation today, um, what is the biggest thing you've learned as uh, an investor and entrepreneur that you can share with our audience today? Well, the, the people are are the key. And you'll hear this from other investors as well. It's great when people identify big needs, big market opportunities, but most companies, most companies that I've seen, I don't know if it's most companies in, in total, but most companies I've seen need to change their strategy at some point. They run into a wall, the technology doesn't work, or the market shifts, or the reimbursement changes, or new competition comes into play. And in the end, you're relying on the, the dedication and the flexibility and nimbleness of the management team to be able to take the resources they have and, and pivot and come up with a new plan that's going to lead them to success. We've seen over and over this past year is a great example. So many of our companies, as, as many companies across the world have done, needed to pivot in the face of COVID. Their basic business models just weren't going to work anymore. And when COVID first hit and we were thinking about our portfolio and the number of companies that were going to be hit hard by COVID, we were a little depressed. <laughs> we thought this, this is really going to be a, a tough year for us. And virtually every company, not everyone, but virtually every company was able to change direction, change their models. And it's it's about the people. So spending as much time as we can getting to know the people and making sure that they they will take input, they'll look for input in other places. We're dealing with very smart people, but smart people can still listen. They can still seek out other expertise. That's the kind of founder, the kind of entrepreneur that we're, we're looking for because we've seen it lead to success. And if people want to learn more information about Astia, can you share a website or resource they can go to to learn more? Absolutely. Our, our website is astia.org, A-S-T-I-A. .org. I do want to put in a specific plug. We talked about some of the difficulties in women getting funded. What we've also observed is that women of color have a particularly hard time getting funded. Something like 0.3% of venture capital goes to women of color. Wow. And the it, it really is pathetic. So as Astia, we've made it part of our mission to not just support women, but pay particular attention to women of color. Some of our investors now exclusively will invest in women of color. But in addition, we've been able to go out and raise grant funding from a couple of corporations. We're always looking for more grant funding. So if anybody's interested who's listening, please get in touch. Uh, but this allows us to provide mat basically matching funding. So if as an angel group, we provide you know X dollars, we could perhaps double that through some of the grant funding that is available and make it, you know, help, help cushion the difficulty for, for women of color in fundraising. So excellent again is a particular focus of ours at this time, unfortunately. 
Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing and thank you for your time today, Karen. Always a pleasure to talk with you and thank you for finding that unique perspective of an entrepreneur who has gone the distance and then also is now giving back through investment and advice. Really great having you on our today today. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. I think there's a lot of great nuggets that not only females or women of color can take from this, but also just uh, entrepreneurs of of, uh, any gender. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Perfect. Well, thank you all for listening and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at KPP Podcast. If you'd like to be on the show or know someone who would make a great guest, feel free to reach out. Hope to see you next time.